Hello, and welcome to another great message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Thanks for joining us today. For notes and video related to this message, please visit www.parkviewchurch.org. Well, good morning. You know, this without a doubt has been a very difficult week, and I know, I know for many of you, you have those weeks that sometimes come, sometimes go, but there are different struggles that we have in our life, different seasons in our life that are very difficult. And I, whenever I think of that, whenever I think of a hard day, hard week, I, I think back to the time just after I had left medical school to go to Dallas Theological Seminary and um, got a job at Baylor Hospital to put myself through school. And I was working, working there, and I was in my office, and things, the day was as hectic as a day could ever get. I was under so much stress. And I remember my manager came in to my office. He opened up the door. And he stuck his head in and he smiled. And he said, Jeff, don't forget, Jesus is coming again. And I can remember sitting there and just all of a sudden this entire weight that was on my shoulders and over my countenance was just lifted off the thought, that's right, Jesus is alive. He is in control and Jesus is coming again. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. We're going to talk about the second coming of Christ. And we're not going to Revelation 19. We've already been through that a few months ago. I want to look at it a little differently. And it's amazing. Most Christians uh, don't have a problem with the first coming of Christ. Most Christians don't have any problem with Christmas. They have no problem with a baby in a manger. But yet when it comes to the second coming of Christ, uh, there's either a disregard for it or certainly we are not motivated to live in a way that God has called us to live in light of that second coming of Christ. And the two are radically different. Without going into a lot of detail, let me just paint a little comparison contrast between the first and the second coming, and then we'll get into the, the final chapter of the final book and the final verses of the final chapter of the final book. The first com coming, there was a star that marked his arrival. But the second coming, the heavens will roll up like a scroll. The, the heavens will split, stars will plummet, and his own brilliance will light up the heavens. The first coming, the wise men brought him gifts. But the second coming, when he comes, he will bring rewards for his own. The first time he came in poverty. The next time he will come with all the riches of glory. The first time he was born quietly in a manger and the world didn't take notice. But the second time he will burst through heaven's doors. The earth will open. There will be a trumpet that will herald to the world that he has come and he will light up the sky with his glory and every single eye will see him. The first time he was dressed in swaddling clothes. The next time he will clothe and be clothed in war garments as a mighty conqueror with his vesture splattered with blood, the blood of his enemies, and um, with his own blood, the blood that he shed for me. The first time that he came, he was called a liar. He was called a deceiver, a false prophet, a devil. The next time he comes, he will be called faithful and true. The first time when he was in the road to Jerusalem, he was rejected, riding on the back of an ass. The next time he comes, he will come bursting out of heaven on a white war charger, victorious over sin, over death, over hell, over the false prophet, and over the world system. The first time he came, his eyes sparkled with love and tenderness as he gathered children to himself. His eyes glowed with compassion as he healed the sick and raised the dead. 
and his eyes were filled with tears as he wept for those he loved. The next time he comes, his eyes will be a flaming fire. There will be piercing, probing, penetrating eyes that will illumine the darkest darkness. And those eyes will look into the depths of every heart. And he will know, and he will be able to judge perfectly and righteously. The first time he came, he came by himself. The next time he comes, he will come uh, with his own. The first time he was crowned with thorns. The next time he comes, he will be crowned with diadems and reign with dominion and power. The first time he was rejected by his own, the next time he comes, he will uh, return with those who have trusted him. Jude 14, with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. Or Colossians 3, we will appear with him in glory. So the first time he came to die to save us from our sins, the second time he comes, he will come to sovereignly reign. The first time he came, he was trampled underfoot. Uh, he was hated for his love. His grace was spurned. He was unjustly mocked, accused, and tried. The next time he comes, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But is that true? Is it really true? We don't have a problem with Jesus coming at Christmas. We don't have a problem with him being wrapped in swaddling clothes. We don't have, him, we don't have any problem with that, if, if we're Christians. But is it really true that he will come in the way the Bible says he will come? And if it is, Exactly then, what difference should that make in our lives? I love the book. I love Oskinis, and one of the books that he wrote, Time for Truth, he illustrates it by using a baseball illustration. And of course, that gets my attention right away. And so the, the baseball illustration goes something like this there were three umpires, and these three umpires are arguing about the strike zone. And so the one, the first umpire says, Well, there are balls and there are strikes. And I call them the way they are. Uh, the next umpire says, well, that's arrogant. Uh, they're balls and they're strikes, and I call them the way I see them. And the third umpire says, well, that's no better. Why beat around the bush? Why not be realistic about it? They're balls and they're strikes, and they ain't nothing until I call them. And so Oskinis goes on to say that is exactly these three umpires represent the three views of truth. The first view of truth, the first umpire represents the traditional view of truth, um, where truth is objective and truth is really independent of the mind of the knower because there's a very clear authority, there's a very clear standard. And so truth is there, but truth is there to be discovered. The second umpire really speaks for moderate relativism, that truth is truth as each person sees it. Truth is truth according to their perspective. Truth is truth according to their interpretation. And then the third umpire, that's, I call him the way I see him, then the third umpire uh, expresses a radically relativist or postmodern position. 
that truth really is not there to be discovered, but truth is there for us to create for ourselves. I really think the reason that the book of Revelation, and especially the judgment that comes in the second return of Christ, is often for Christians overlooked or quickly disregarded is because we live in a postmodern culture where truth is something that we create rather than discover. So we become very uncomfortable with a whole notion of truth. We don't like our culture doesn't like truth because if we say that something is true, then that implies something else is false. And saying that sounds so negative. It sounds so hurtful. It sounds so unkind and so unloving. It sounds so prideful and it sounds so arrogant. Then Oskinis concludes by saying this, truth is one of the simplest, most precious gifts without which we would not be able to handle reality or even be able to negotiate life. Truth is a vital requirement not only for individuals who would live a good life, but for free societies who would remain free. I love the verse that Jesus said, or the expression of Jesus, and, and I would tell this to my kids all the time. Whenever my kids would get in trouble, I would remind, us, remind them of what Jesus said. Jesus said, look, you shall know the truth and it's the truth that's going to set you free. So what I want us to do today, we're on this journey of Jesus. You know, around Easter, we looked at his life, we looked at his death, the resurrection, crucifixion, resurrection, the ascension last week, and now I want us to look at his uh, return. And so what does uh, this, the final book of the Bible, the final chapter of the last book, and the final few verses of the last chapter of the last book of the Bible really have to say to us today. And the first thing that comes across real clear is that the Bible teaches us the truth. Notice how this passage that John read starts. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Christ himself revealed himself in Revelation chapter 3 as the faithful and true witness Later on in Revelation 19, he called himself the faithful and true one. And it's because he is, he is the faithful and true one that we are given the instruction of verse 10 where he says, don't seal up these words. If the truth is going to set you free, don't seal these words up. Don't do that. So the point is, words matter. Words matter are part of what it means to be created in the very image of God. Words are the vehicle that God uses to express to us who he is. They're the words that we are given to tell other people who we are and how they can come to know Christ as well, to reveal Christ to others. That's why as Christians, even if you you think of the United States as being a Christian nation, at least the beginning of it anyway. That's, that's why Christians care about freedom of speech. That's why we care that our words and our actions are congruous together. They work together. They are not sending separate messages. That's why, as a church, we urge you to read the Word of God because words matter. 
was, Eric, I see you in the back there. You're trying to hide, but I do see you. And so I was interviewing Eric for an elder this, this, um, this next term. And Eric, I was so impressed that you said one of the things that really changed your life was you'd always wanted to read through the Bible. And for the last seven years in a row, he's, he's gotten the chronological chart for reading through the Bible. He's done that seven years in a row. And I thought, awesome. And I thought, that's a, that's a great testimony. So we do have reading plans out on the um, Connect counter. And so please, if you haven't started reading the very words of God, I urge you, pick up uh, one of those reading charts. Just stop by and grab one because words matter. So the Bible teaches us uh, the truth because words absolutely matter. And because um, words matter so much, it underscores why Jesus would use such stern words to end this book. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add the plagues described in it. If anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. And you think, how could God be more clear? How could God underscore the seriousness of this any more than he did here? Moses did the very same thing in Deuteronomy 4. You shall not add to the word that I command to you or take away from it because the words of God matter. They are the truth. They're like the first umpire. Uh, they're balls and they're strikes, and I call them the way they are. You know, in baseball, it's interesting. There's only one thing in baseball that remains the same. If you play in Little League, if you play in high school, if you play junior high, if you play college, you know, everything changes the, the, from, the, from the plate to the pitcher's mound, the, the length of the bases, the bats, the ball, the ball sizes, the, the glo- everything changes as you go up. There's only one thing that remains the same from the very first time you play t-ball to uh, the World Series. It's the size of home plate. 17 inches, because it's the truth. It's 17 inches. Now, hey, I would love it if it were 24 inches, you know, or, or two or three, you know, and so it would help me. But you know what? It's 17 inches. The truth doesn't change. So the Bible not only tells us the truth, it tells us the truth about Jesus. What I love about this passage is that it unfolds so much about who Jesus is, the truth about Jesus. For example, in verse 16, tells us that Jesus was incarnated. He, he was God who came in flesh, and he reveals this by using his incarnation name, I, Jesus. That's his incarnation name. It reminds us in the midst of this book that talks about these incredible visions of who Jesus is. It reminds us that he was, he was a real historic person who, who walked I guess sandals, but he walked in the dirt of Galilee. He was physically hung on a cross. He was bodily resurrected and ascended, and he is going to come back the way that he came. He's incarnated. I, Jesus. He is the Messiah. He's, he is, Jesus is far more than just a great person who did great things with a heart of compassion. He's far more than just a great teacher or a great prophet. He is the Messiah. Uh, rooted, fulfilling every prophecy of the Old Testament. He says, I am the root. In other words, I came before David, and I'm the descendant of David, the offspring of David, 
the one who came after David. In other words, I am the Messiah. I am the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world, the ultimate Lamb to pay for the sin of the world. And then thirdly, he is God, fully God. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I love how Revelation begins. Very clearly, Revelation 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says who? Says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. And here, the very end of the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Well, who's talking? I, Jesus. He is God. Uh, fourthly, he is the judge of the world. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. He taught the same thing in Matthew 16. For the Son of Man is coming, to, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And I go, you know, I read that, and I start to sweat a little bit. And I'm going, I that's good he's coming, but I don't know about that recompense part. I don't know about the judgment part, because if he repays for what I've done, I'm sunk. Well, that's the next beautiful thing it talks about, that Jesus also is the Savior. Blessed are those, verse 14, who wash their robes so that they may be right, that they may have a right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city of the gates. So it's amazing to the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, the last few verses of the last chapter of the last book of the Bible really gives us a summary of Christianity, of how God made us, he made us in his image, and yet we decided to go our own way. We decided to rebel against God, and we missed the mark. We became sinners. And because of that, because of God's holiness and righteousness, he will judge anything that doesn't matter up. He's coming with recompense. He will, he's coming to judge. And the only hope and trust that we have is that there is somebody who can save me from my sins. And so God himself becomes flesh, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, comes and he pays the price that I should have paid. And he then credits his righteousness to my account when I don't deserve it at all. There's nothing I could do to earn it or deserve it. He credits that righteousness to my account. And then he dies in my place at substitutionary death and thereby satisfies or propitiates the very wrath of God. So what is the only solvent that can remove our sin's stains? It is the blood of Jesus Christ. Years ago, a hymn writer by the name of Robert Lowry, 1876, answered that question. What can wash away my sin? Because he knew that any sin would separate him from a righteous and holy and perfect God. What can wash away my sin? He says, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I won't go through all the verses, but the refrain, we can all identify it. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
So this book ends with verses 16 to 17, which really is a summary of the gospel's appeal. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. In other words, the night's over, a new day's coming, salvation is accomplished, salvation is finished. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So we are to come to Christ for salvation. Those who are thirsty are to come. And we are to invite others to come. So the invitation, as you see, comes from three different sources. It comes from the Spirit, from the church, and from the individual saints to others. Come. Come, come. And I know if you're here like I did years ago, I am a dirty man. Jesus would say, but I died for you. You need to come. But Jesus, I'm not a righteous man. He would say, yes, but, but I am. You just need to come. But Jesus, I am so far from God. Jesus would say, yeah, but I'm in his right hand. But I have violated every law. And Jesus would say, yeah, but I've kept every jot and every tittle and I have fulfilled every prophecy. So you just need to come. But Jesus, I mean, there's nothing good in me. I mean, matter of fact, I can identify with the Bible that says that you're dead without Christ. I am dead to who God is. And Jesus would say, yeah, but I can give you a new birth. I can give you new life. Please, you, just come. But Jesus, I'm an enemy of God. Yeah, but I'm the son of God. So there are no more arguments there are no more excuses. And you think, but how? How do you just come? People through the years have struggled with that very question. How and why did that do you come? There's a lady years ago by the name of Charlotte Elliott. She had an old preacher, a French Huguenot preacher. She went to him and asked him, how? How do you just come when you are like you are? And he said, Charlotte, you just come as you are. Years later, she was reflecting upon her conversion and decided to write a hymn. And so in 1835, she wrote, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou didst me come to thee. This is where I was. Oh, Lamb of God, I come just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot to thee whose blood can cleanse every single spot. Oh, Lamb of God, I come. So I was just 21 years of age and I had spent my whole life apart from God. I found pleasure in mocking him 
about the only time I referred to him. It was in the middle of a phrase, a cursing phrase, where I would take his name in vain. Sought my own life, lived my own life, went my own way, pleased myself, and finally ended up seeking him. And on December 31st, 1971, at 11.45 p.m., just as I am, though tossed about. And I came with him with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within and without. Finally for me, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Well, verse 17 is the final invitation. In the last chapter, the last book of the Bible. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The final appeal. So the Bible teaches us the truth that sets us free. It teaches us the truth about Jesus. And within this passage, it also teaches us the truth about Jesus' return. We're told for one last time that Jesus will come soon. As a matter of fact, three times in just this final passage of the final chapter of the final book of the Bible, we're told three times in verse 7, 12, and 20. Even the final verse before the benediction says, before, the, before that benediction, surely I am coming soon. It says, behold, I'm coming soon. In verse 7, it starts... Blessed is one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So the soonness of the return of Jesus is a call to us for two things. It's a call for us for obedience, and it's a call for us to holiness, those two things, to keep the words of this book. Last week, as Pastor Doug went through the ascension, the bodily ascension, he referred to Luke chapter 9. I was looking at Luke chapter 9, and really the whole pivot of Luke chapter 9 comes around in verse 26, the Son of Man coming in glory. They were going through a very, very difficult time, and the whole thing, look, Jesus is coming again. He's coming in glory. And so I began to look at the context of, of Luke chapter 9, and I thought, Here's the admonition for obedience and holiness. He's coming in glory. Therefore, what difference should that make in our everyday lives? Number one, deny yourself. If anyone would come after me, that's verse 23 of Luke 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If there is truth in the fact that he's coming again, that should cause you to deny yourself. Deny yourself in the, the, the use of your time. How do you use your, your time? Do you use it for yourself or do you use it as you take up the cross and follow him? How do you use it for the talents that God has given it, given to you? Do you use them for yourself or do you use them uh, to further the kingdom of God, to exonerate his glory? How do you use the, your treasures? Is it do you deny yourself with the treasures that you have or do you use it in a way that would bring honor and glory to God? Deny self. Secondly, verse 26, that's death. That's death. 
Then we go from death to emotions. Don't be ashamed of Jesus, verse 26. If Jesus really is coming in the way he said he's coming, why would we ever shy away from sharing this wonderful news with others? Don't be ashamed of Jesus, verse 26. Verse 35, this is the head and the heart. Listen to Jesus. That's why we as a church urge you uh, to read your Bibles. You, if you're going to obey Jesus, you have to listen to him first because words matter. Listen to Jesus. Verse 57, this is your will and obedience. Follow Jesus. You can't follow him if you haven't heard the words. So listen to him and then follow him. And then lastly, verse 62, persevere. Don't quit. Don't put your hand to the plow and look back. Don't quit. If you truly want Jesus Christ to come now, there will be evidence in your life today for how you live. There are a couple of options. The other day, we, we watched a Netflix thing on the Titanic. You know, it's amazing. As the Titanic went down on April 14, 1912, uh, the 2,000 people on board, very, very rich to very, very poor, uh, 1,500 survived. But you know the band, what the band was playing as the Titanic went down near my God to thee. And what was ironic, three years later, not to the day, but a month later in May, May 7, 1915, uh, the Lusitania was sunk by a German U-boat, U-20, was sunk. And you know what song the band was playing on the Lusitania? The Beer Barrel Polka. So let me ask you, when you face the end of your life, I mean, what song characterizes your life better? Is it the beer barrel polka, which really, ah, you're, you're going ahead full steam with your own self-confidence, your own self-control, you face life with the beer barrel polka, or do you really face it with near my God to thee? There in my Father's home, safe and at rest, there in my Savior's love, perfectly blessed, age after age to be near my God to thee. I don't know about you, but I want the song of my life to be near my God to thee rather than the beer barrel polka. Well, let me pray. And then Pastor Doug's going to come up and share a few thoughts with us. Father, we want to thank you for the book of Revelation, a book so profound that the wisest men must tread lightly. You can understand the depths of it and you can Thank you for listening to this teaching from Parkview Church. We pray that you are blessed by God's Word. For additional teaching, resources, podcasts, as well as information on who we are and our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.parkviewchurch.org.